I don't know if any of you caught it while Daniel was doing the, uh, the announcements there, uh, or I'm sorry, opportunities. <laughs> the uh, power kind of went in and out for a second or two. I don't know if you guys noticed that. So here's, here's the plan. If the power goes out, we'll just leave and go home because it's going to be too hot. No. Um, so if the power does go out for some reason, we'll just open the center doors and uh, we'll have a secret service and uh, we'll be good. Um, it's, uh, it's a good Sunday to be with you. It's a great Sunday always to be with each other in opening God's Word. And this is a transition point once again in the book of Isaiah. And I just wanted to start it with a question, very simply. If God saves sinners, which we believe, if God saves sinners... What's our part? What's our part? Now, there are books written on this that are about 7,000 pages long, but it actually can be reduced down to two words. You ready? Ready to write this down? You can go home, all right? Trust God. Trust God. That's, that's what he wants from us. Why does he want trust? Well, it's very simple. God is sovereign. God is trustworthy. It is amazing to me when you watch the world around us run to other quote-unquote salvations. Running to other salvations all over the place. The simple truth is, is that God wants to show us what a great Savior He is. And the truth be known is that in our fallen state where we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, trusting God is not easy for us in that sinful state. If we actually live by faith in God, it means some really radical things in our lives. It means that we must follow Him out of our ways into His ways. We must follow Him into His ways, His adventures, and For many of us, at different times, that's not very easy. Some people, it's completely unimaginable. Think about it. What what is it anywhere in our culture that encourages us to live on the belief that God saves? Outside of the church? Mm -hmm. And in this day and age... Many churches don't believe that as well. Thus, they're not a church. So deep inside ourselves, something needs to happen. Trust God. Something whispers that God needs to be trusted, but then something also whispers that that's a bad risk. Our culture shouts out that there won't 
There won't be a God there when you need Him. There won't be a God there when you need Him. And too many people think too small of God. So, people become controlled by fear. People look back instead of look forward to what God has for them. But we, as believers, need to have a confident trust so that we can experience the all-sufficient grace of God. And the question lying at the center of our lives then is, do you feel safe with God alone? Do you feel safe in God alone? And every single one of us makes a statement about that and how we live. And this is the statement that God wants us to make. Back in Isaiah 26, verse 8. Indeed, while following the way of your judgments, O Lord, we have waited for you eagerly. Your name, even your memory, is the desire of our souls. That's faith. It's a great way to live. I'm waiting for God eagerly. I'm waiting for the next step of what God is doing in my life, in your life, in the life of our church here. I, I am eagerly waiting to see what God is doing. And, and not just that, I am going to lift his name up. I'm going to lift even the memory of him up as the desire of my soul. That is faith. That is a great way to live. And chapter 28 that enters into a new section of the book of Isaiah, in chapters 28 through 35, God affirms, and this should be surprising to none of us here, but God affirms that He has the power to fulfill the saving purposes that He's declared in the last 27 chapters. God is looking the Israelites right in the eye. He's looking us right in the eye and claims that he can and will deliver on every single promise found in the gospel. Do you believe him? Do you trust him? Does Jesus rule over the mess called my life sometimes? You know, does he? Isaiah sets up in this section of Scripture some very important contrasts. He wants us to see the issues at play here in trusting God, and he wants us to respond in a decisive way. Wouldn't you agree that there's really nowhere in Scripture where God is real thrilled with us going, yeah, okay, I'll follow him. Yeah, I'll try it out. 
It's decisive. You're in or you're out. You're hot or you're cold. And Isaiah starts this off, and Daniel already read this for us, with this idea of, of crowns. In the first few verses here, the crown is mentioned three times. Two were bad and one was good. In verses 1 through 6. You see there, starting off in, in verse 1, woe to the proud crown. Not crowd, crown. The crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. And so that's, that's the northern kingdom. Verse 3, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot. It's going to be in verse 1 once again, the fading flower. So Isaiah's looking north from Jerusalem, the northern kingdom. His prophetic eye notices something. Their capital city, Samaria, is the crown of the nation. And it, as it says there, it's, you know, it, the fading flower of its glorious beauty. It has the gardens and the groves and the trees and the vines when you look at the, their capital city, you go, they've made it. They've made it. But Isaiah sees in Samaria a living metaphor for the easygoing decadence that soon they become easy pickings for the Assyrian invader, which happened in 722 B.C., and this is not something that just happened once. I, I, I mean, I immediately go to the end of the Roman Empire. They were a mess with sin and a mess of decadence and all types of junk. And what happened? The enemy came in and didn't really have that big of a problem. The culture fell. And it's interesting to see here, what is, what is God uh, appalled by? They're drunkards. They're drunkards. He's appalled by their drunkenness. And, and you have to sit there and kind of ponder and go, well, that's kind of a big thing in our culture. It's a huge thing in our culture. I was reading this week, there was a government official in Washington, D.C. that said, we have three parties in Washington, D.C., the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, and the Cocktail Party. That's, that's sad. Do you realize that Alcohol, combined with tobacco, nicotine products, those, those are America's two favorite legal narcotics. And they do far more damage than most people realize. Now, most of us in this room would probably say, yeah, I totally get that alcohol and, and you know, tobacco products, lung cancer, all that type of stuff. Yeah, I, I get that, that's, that there's a lot of people. I don't think you get how many. 
It does far more damage per year than you can realize. This statistic is completed from last year. So this is 2021. 575,000 people in the United States died from alcohol and tobacco-related deaths. 575,000. To give you a comparison in the day and age that we are living in, during this whole COVID thing that we have been a part of and still a part of, as of Friday, 1.437 million deaths of people with COVID or whatever, however you want to look at that, okay? We can debate that thing later. But 1.4 million. 1,400,000 in the last two and a half years. I'm sorry. Actually, I did that on purpose. That's alcohol and tobacco is 1.4 million. The COVID thing is one million. So think about it for a moment. The thing that we see that's hurting the most people in our country is the thing that we actually advertise, the thing that we actually left open during the whole lockdown stuff and celebrated. What hope is there in a culture like ours, in a pleasure-loving society that kind of gives lip service to actually caring about people? Oh, if you care about people, you would do this. yet turn around and say, oh, drink this, do this, with total disregard of how it's blowing families up. The tragic consequences of sin are ugly, aren't they? People drunk and zipping through red lights and killing five, seven people at a time, right? Total disregard for people. And you think there's not a judgment that's going to be coming? And you see what Isaiah, and I bring it up, go forward and backwards on this one. What Isaiah sees in the northern kingdom is a script, like I've said, that has played out over and over and over again in history. Kingdoms rise, kingdoms fall, wealth is accumulated, then it's stolen. Egos climb onto some pedestal and then fall down. The proud crown. And I have said this multiple times, but it fits right directly in here, so I'm going to say it again. God is generous to us at West Hills Church today. And you know why? He's allowing us to live in a troubled time like this. And you know, Scott, you're an idiot. That what? 
He is allowing us to live in a troubled time, in a troubled time in our culture like ours, when the world is falling apart, secularism is obviously doesn't work, so everyone's running to the hills and all of their different types of wacky stuff. There's no clear answers to anyone's needs, according to the world, and You know what that means for us as Christians, those who are refined by fire? It means, you know what, I am less likely to be taken in by the junk because it's a lot easier to see when you know your Bible. When someone says something around a table and makes everyone else say it around that table and you sit there and you go, that's a bunch of junk. It's gobbledygook. You know, your leader is doing that. We're going to talk about that in a second because there's actually a statement about that here. God is actually generous to us to allow us to live in this. Our salvation is actually more believable now than ever. The collapse of the city of man that we've been talking about We're in the middle of it. And honestly, everyone in this room today, just just deal with me in, in my statement here. How's the city of man stacking up? Is it working out for anyone? No. That's why it's generous to live in this time as a believer because it is so easy for me to go, oh man, I would much, and I'm much happier that I am in the city of God. God is my treasure. God is my delight. You see, we all in this room, if you are a Christian, and if you're not, I'm begging you to consider the possibility that the city of man is a city doomed. And if there's only the city of man and the city of God, what must I do to be in the city of God? You must trust him. Trust him, the one that saves, Jesus Christ. And when God is your treasure and God is more delightful than all of the world, as it says in Matthew 44, when we like the fact that the last will be first and the weak are strong and the fools are wise... Then and only then will we gladly identify with a rejected Savior. That's why when Paul says, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Paul's like, Yeah, the world doesn't hold anything. It doesn't. There is no hope there. And Isaiah is saying that when we see through the world's deception, when we see through the world's nothingness, our hearts are going to prize something, actually. Our hearts are going to prize Christ above all. A spirit of true justice, not social justice, true justice and true strength will empower you to bring into the world 
through the way he has called us to bring it, his word, us sharing his word through the testimony of his word, using us to share that testimony to a lost world. We will very willingly share the only true good that exists. Our world's real big on climate change right now and how, you know, natural resources are being exploited for furthering of God or furthering of what blah, blah, blah. It's like this blah, 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 blah after a while, right? I'm just going to say that God is the least exploited resource in the world. The one that is treated as the last resort is actually the fountainhead. And what he's saying here is, trust me, and I will prove it to you that I'm trustworthy. Trust me, and and as your sovereign Lord and Savior and King, You have nothing to fear. You know, it talks there. Can you believe we've only done two verses? Uh, This is going to be a long sermon. Um, The fading flower of its glorious beauty. God's saying, he's, he's basically writing his hand across every worldly status symbol there you weren't created for this junk you weren't created for this tinsel this little shiny stuff that doesn't work you were created for a greatness that comes from beyond this world Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, but we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our crown. God is our crown of glory. And we better not be too proud to be adorned with God. Because Isaiah looks north to this kingdom that is just full of junk. And he's making that really as the introduction to the primary message that we see in verses 7 through 22. And he's going right to the heart of the problem. The deal breaker for Judah where he's at is the word of God. And Isaiah jumps into this, there's two crowns. Which crown are you wearing? And then he asks a searching question for us all. Well, well then what are you hearing? What are you hearing? Let's, let's dig into verses 7 through 22 right now. Read it along with Daniel as he reads, uh, read it silently as he reads, and we will hear these Scenarios being set up by Isaiah. And to those who reel 
And these also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions and they totter when rendering judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. To whom would he teach knowledge? And to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? For he says, order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose. But they would not listen. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward, be broken and snared and taken captive. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Because you have said, we made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Then hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters will overflow the secret place. Your covenant with death will be canceled, and your pact with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you become its trampling place. As often as it passes through, it will seize you. For morning after morning, it will pass through any time during the day or night, and it will be sheer terror to understand what it means. The bed is too short on which to stretch out, and the blanket is too small to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be stirred up as in the valley of Gibeon to do his task, his unusual task, and to work his work, his extraordinary work. And now do not carry on as scoffers, or your fetters will be made stronger. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts of decisive destruction on all the earth. All right, so Isaiah is setting up the scenario here, and as verse 8 clearly states, it's not a pretty scenario. All of the tables are full of filthy vomit. No space left. I was thinking of doing an illustration with that, but no. I think it's pretty self-explanatory, right? He sees the priests, the prophets of his generation, drunk with their own trendy wisdom. He sees them vomiting up their folly, their philosophies. And actually, in verses 9 and 10, they're mocking Isaiah. You see, Isaiah is quoting the priests and the prophets. He's repeating back to them their response to his message. The he in the first line of verse 9 there, to him who would he teach knowledge and to him would he interpret the message, is, is referring obviously to the Lord but also to him, and the things they can't stomach about Isaiah. There are two things 
the content, first of all, of Isaiah's ministry. That's the point of verse 9. They think his call to faith in God is childish, simplistic, and it is true that the heart of Isaiah's ministry was a simple appeal. And what's those two words once again? Trust God. You know, and then they say, oh, you, you say this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose. I, Isaiah's mission was to call people to find rest. Find rest in what? God's peace. In who God is. But, oh, the experts of their time mock the message. It's beneath them. It's not sophisticated enough. It's not deep enough. They don't feel fed when Isaiah preaches. Martin Luther once said this about preaching. When I preach, I regard neither doctors nor magistrates, of whom I have many in my congregation. I have all my eyes on the servant maids and on the children. And if the learned men are not well pleased with what they hear, well, the door is open and they can leave. Man, I, I like that. So, you know, this message of trust God is too simplistic. It's, it's beneath them. The second thing that they couldn't tolerate is the style of Isaiah's ministry. And that's really the point of verse 10. It's kind of an interesting verse to translate because the priests and the prophets are being really kind of silly. The, the Hebrew there kind of translates best. The best translation is, is this, seriously. Blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. That's, that's what they're saying Isaiah is like. Blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. There's no comprehension of the insight of his ministry. And that's what one of the things that we have to understand, and Jesus even made this very clear. Hey, I'm going to be saying these parables, and guess what's going to happen? Those that, that this, these parables, are, they're way below me. They're, they're unsophisticated, and actually I don't understand them at all, even though they're most, as a believer, I, I read it and I go, that's the most understandable thing on the planet. So nothing's changed. I'm going to go here, and I don't care if it hurts someone or um, if it does, I want you to talk to me afterwards. But it's the exact same issue that's out there today that it just is so, it's like, oh, I just don't get where you're at, where you can't define what a woman is. They, and oh, no, blah, 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 raw, you know, what, you know, you just ask the question, what is a woman? And they can't answer it because their incredible philosophies and all of their gender stuff and everything like that, ask a simple question that deserves a simple answer and it exposes that they have nothing in their response. Their philosophy is made up is of Satan, is not true, and cannot be supported. It's silly. So what is actually interesting here is the mockers of God's word 
are actually the ones that are saying blah, 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 blah. When we, as Christians, when we share God's word, we share, trust God. Trust God. And and what's interesting is in verse 14, we go through all of this. And then verse 14, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. God gets involved. Okay, scoffers. You think you know everything? You don't. And we'll get to that in a minute. And what we have to remember here, and I, and I don't want to belabor this too long, but I think it's very important for us to understand because this is, the, this is the meat of the culture that we live in. What Isaiah here is so real. One person is sitting in the room this morning and hearing the gospel and thinking, I never knew the Bible said so much to this culture and to me today. So there'll be a person sitting here and hearing what we're saying right now, and they'll hear, I never, and they'll, they'll think, I, I, I never knew the Bible had so much to say. This is so meaningful. I can't wait until next Sunday as we unpack this more and more. The very next person who is hearing the same thing is thinking, this Julian guy is dumb. The, the Bible is not impressive. This is not up to my level. I am so much smarter than this junk. Same message, different impact. The question is, then, what is Isaiah wanting to get at? What are you hearing? What what are you hearing When the Bible is opened up, are you delighted or are you annoyed? When the offer of rest that Isaiah is talking about, rest for the weary, comes to you, do you trust God and accept that? Or do you resist it and then accept a message of judgment? Paul quotes this passage then, moving on in verses 16, to warn us and to show us what is the foundation and what is not. And that this message is going to be incomprehensible for people that do not believe. It's going to be gibberish to them until they accept Christ until the scales fall off their eyes, just like Paul, until a miraculous change happens in our lives, it'll be gibberish. And the leaders of Jerusalem refuse, as we see here, the point at which their faith was being tested. Here was the threat of this aggression that was going to come in. They tried to save themselves through politics a political alliance with Egypt. Egypt was offering protection. God was offering protection. Which one did they pick? Egypt was saying, you can count on us, and God's saying, let me show you how I care for you. And they chose Egypt. Because God wasn't real to their hearts. 
They signed a treaty, treaty with Egypt. And Isaiah is essentially saying, you, you've, you haven't made a covenant with Egypt, you've made a covenant with death. Their unbelief sealed their fate. New Testament categories, if you jump over to Revelation chapter 2, verse 5, it's very symbolic and it very much mirrors this. God remove a lampstand. Because in that moment of truth, they decided we have to be practical and do this our own way. I'll show you how this works in our culture today in churches. I was reading a treatise from a church person that I knew from the college I went to that was very disheartened that his church background was, by their best guess, by 2050, going to have no one going to their churches anymore. And he's just like, we've got to change. We've got to become more relevant. We've got, to, we've got to mirror what people hear in the culture and share God through that type of message. And the whole time I was like, you didn't mention the one thing that matters. You didn't share the gospel. You didn't tell people to trust God. Instead, you want to say whatever the world is saying is right now, our church is going to say it's right now, and that church background has, and they can't figure it out. Well, we, well, we accept everyone just as they are, but they're not coming. And it's very simple, folks. The church is not supposed to be like the world. Why would you pick the church to go to if it's the same as everything else? Right? It's like, if it's the same as everything else, why hang out here? You see, you make a covenant with Egypt, you make a covenant with death. Isaiah is communicating the tra tra tragedy of having the thought of any other shelter than God. Any other shelter than God is a refuge of lies. And every single one of us, this is zero it down, this is not just about groups of people, this is about us individually. Satan is after every single one of us, right? He doesn't want to see anyone be God's children. What is the point at which your faith is being tested today? Today, how is God calling you to surrender control? He was telling the Israelites, just trust me. Trust me, don't sign that covenant of death over there. Trust me. Surrender control, accept his answers, his pace, his timing. There's a lot more to God's salvation than deliverance from a bunch of powers back a few thousand years ago. 
Because the real enemy is Satan. The real enemy is sin. And that will enslave forever if you do not trust God. And God's saying, trust me. Don't trust falsehoods. You can face the reality of your sin, the guilt you have, and lay it at my feet, and I will show you how I forgive the sinner. God is our ally through Christ. Trust Him. That's that whole idea of... I. I am the one who laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. City of God, foundation, trust in Jesus Christ. It's a solid, valuable insight into life. How many of you know an old hymn saying the church is one foundation? is what? Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not the institutions. It's not the history. It's not traditions. It's not new fancy communion cups that flip over. <laughs> All of that fades away, right? There's only one point to a foundation. The foundation stays. The church's one and only foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord, whom we know by faith alone. Trust God. Whoever believes will not be in haste. You're not going to freak out when the world blows up. You're not going to be scurrying here and there in frantic self-salvation every time a new thing comes along that says, this is now what we say. You're just going to go, that's dumb. I, I trust in God. Really, what it comes up to is if, if Christ is our one foundation and he's the stone, the tested stone, the costly cornerstone... Faith in Christ stands up to anything. And, and what he says in verse 20 there, uh, what is said there, the, Bible, the, the bed is too short on which to stretch out, the blanket is too small to wrap oneself in, that's self-trust. That, that's what happens when, <laughs> oh, I'm going to do this myself. Well, the bed's too short. Blankets too narrow, never at rest. Our restless unbelief will always frustrate us. It won't work out. It must be childlike faith. And if we don't trust in God, it's not like God just is poof, gone, disappears. Because some people kind of believe that. Oh, just leave me alone with your own God stuff. Just, just leave me alone. Well, I, just a message to everyone that, that thinks that if you 
don't listen to God, God will leave you alone. That's not how it works out. God is at work, even in the lives of people who refuse Him. And Isaiah's talking of some battles that are going to go on, that did go on in their past. And he's saying, you know, even, even in the midst of this, God fights on as he did before. He always will. He's still moving. Always will be. Completing the mission. Completing the fight that he is fighting for. And then, it's a simple question then, well, who is God fighting for? Anyone who trusts in Him, according to the gospel. Who is God fighting against? Anyone who refuses Him. Now, therefore, do not scoff. There's two outcomes in all of this. Let's finish this off, starting in verse 23. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my words. Does the farmer plow continually to plant seed? Does he continually turn and harrow the ground? Does he not level its surface and and sow dill and scatter cumin and plant wheat and rose, barley in its place and rye within its area? For his God instructs and teaches him properly. For dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is the cartwheel driven over cumin, But dill is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a club. Grain for bread is crushed. Indeed, he does not continue to thresh it forever because the wheel of his cart and his horses eventually damage it. He does not thresh it longer. This also comes from the Lord of hosts who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. And you have every right to kind of sit there and you go, Please explain. Please please unpack that just a tiny bit. There's two encouragements in this. He's looking at a peasant farmer. And so we need to take ourselves out of the 21st century that we're in here, place ourselves under a a feudal farm system. So we have an agricultural laborer working on his Lord's estate. Okay, so different picture. And this humble man is smart enough to know that the upheaval of plowing is only temporary. Plowing changes the planting. And Isaiah wonders, how does Mr. Farmer know that? And he answers that. How does he know it? Verse 26, God taught him. Therefore, God himself must be smart enough to know that endless upheaval and disruption in our lives is going to be fruitless. Does God break up the rock-hard soil of your heart? Yes. Does His work of plowing get rough with us at times? Yes, but not continually, and only in order to plant new life. God always has a life-enriching purpose with those pains and plowing that we go on in our life. What do we do? We yield to Him. 
Verses 27 through 29, the farmer again, he's a simple way that he thrashes and crushes his crops. Each crop requires its own treatment, its own method of refinement, and even a correct method must not be overused. Again, it was God who made the farmer savvy to how to do this. Does this sound familiar to where we started? How do we get through life? Trust God. How do we know God's will for our life? His Word. Trust God. He knows exactly how to work with each one of us. Amen? I mean, there's a very clear picture of it as we wrap up right now that I thought of this week. Very, very clear picture when Jesus... Jesus gets on Peter a little bit. Not that that was a hard thing to do. But in John 21, Peter turns around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following him. I'm reading verse 20. The one who also had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? Verse 21, so Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Unpack that a little bit. John's got a different call in part than you do, Peter. Don't worry about what I've called John to do. You follow me. What does that mean? Trust God. Now, he's never going to call you to do anything against his word right? So you can't claim that one. That's Satan trying to mess with you. But he's given each one of us different gifts, talents. Follow him. Trust him. Don't be the scoffer. Be the one who hears the word of the Lord and follows. Let's pray together.